Hi, this is Roger Bebout and Nima Rizai with Bilarski and Bebout CPAs. We're local accountants here in Sacramento. We service clients throughout the greater California area and some clients across the nation. We wanted to present this information regarding a recently passed legislation, AB 150, which has to do with the salt tax workaround. Recently passed legislation uh, in the state of California. It's a st- California state law, not federal let me first disclaim, and Nima, jump in here and anywhere I fall short. This is not absolutely bulletproof. This is different for every taxpayer situation. So you definitely want to speak to your professional service provider and assess your individual situation and do not exclusively rely on the information we're talking about here because it may not be applicable to you and it could be very different for your personal situation. So, Yeah, that's true. I mean, the jury's still out on this, guys. And frankly, uh, every state is different as well. So you might be caveat and speak with, uh, like Roger said, with your CPA or other tax professional and make sure that you are compliant with your relevant state. Furthermore, this is a rule in a place and time, right? So fast forward, you could be listening to this in the future and it's no longer applicable or there's been a superseding tax overhaul. So always just be cognizant of that. This is applicable. This was recently passed and the law for the state of California actually passed on July 16th, 2021. Other states had done this in advance of California And when the other states put this workaround in place, the Department of Treasury actually looked at this. And that was in November of 2020. And you can identify their proposed guidance report after they assessed this workaround. It's uh, notice 2020-75 issued in November of 2020. And they pretty much didn't challenge this and so it gives us a unique situation where we look at this and we're all conservative as cpas we never want to expose our clients or advise you take a position that would be contrary to the law um but the irs looked at this and they let it ride and so here we are looking at california passing this legislation and now we're doing our homework and research on how to do this for our clients and, and how it works so um Let's let's back up and talk about like what is salt tax, right? Just to make sure listeners know what that is. And the salt tax is state and local taxes paid by taxpayers. And that was capped at $10,000 as a result of the 2017 tax overhaul. So you no longer, if your property taxes exceeded $10,000, say you had an expensive property in the state of California, New Jersey, New York, those are all high property tax states. Um, and it, your property tax exceeded ten thousand. Well, sorry, that's that's unfortunate. Your 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 state and local tax is limited at ten k. That also takes into con- consideration the the sales tax on on items you purchase throughout the year. You, you're no longer getting the benefit of those state and local use taxes you pay. Um, and Nima, am I forgetting anything? On yeah. That? So basically, the salt tax was an itemized deduction on the Schedule A, and then before you'd be able to basically max it out for sales tax, property tax. It's either sales tax or income tax, but then property tax, real estate tax, and then um, you would take that as an itemized deduction. As Roger alluded, in 2017, they came and said the salt tax is capped at ten thousand. So as a result, a lot of people were essentially losing out deductions because their actual salt tax paid. I've seen it, you know, much higher than $10,000, but they were capped at $10,000. So this is a good thing for a lot of people. And well, perhaps let me, let me qualify that statement. Not a lot of people. 
This is specific to people that own pass-through entities, unfortunately. It is not a benefit to all taxpayers. We just interpret laws and try and communicate the rules and how they could be applied to our clients. So unfortunately, this specific law is directly pertaining to individuals that own pass-through entities. And by pass-through entities, we mean entities that result in a K-1. Namely, we're talking about uh, S-corporations and partnerships. Mm -hmm. Correct. One other thing to take into consideration, is this a good strategy for me? And one of our favorite things that we say as CPAs is, it depends. This this is definitely situational. We got to look at all the cards on the table before assessing this for anybody um, for multiple reasons. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn it over to Nima. He's done a lot of homework on this today. This information's fresh in his head. And we're going to talk about how this works and how it could be done logistically by these pass-through entities. So, Nima. Okay, thank you very much. So, first of all, you know, the question is who is qualified? What entities are qualified? So, um, partnerships are disregarded entities that have, like, publicly traded partnerships or combined uh, reporting group requirements, things like that. They are not qualified. So, we're talking basically partnerships and S-corporations. And, you know, guys, this is a moving target because if you look at some of the earlier articles and legislations, they'll actually qualify these and say, oh, for example, only S-corporations will qualify. But they've come along and, and they've changed that subsequently. So, uh, you'll, again, you'll have to speak with your tax professional for the latest update. But generally speaking, like S-corporations, partnerships, uh, is the ones we're interested in, and those are the ones that do qualify. So the way it works is the, uh, the, the pass-through entity, I'll refer to that as that because they could refer to the partnership or the S-corporation, will pay the SALT tax on behalf of a recipient of a K-1 of, of a shareholder or partner and said shareholder or partner will essentially take credit for that on their in, individual tax return. The logic is that by taking credit as opposed to taking a deduction on the Schedule A on the SALT tax, they can work around that $10,000 cap. For example, if I take a credit of 5000 and then I pay 10000 SALT tax, and now, well, I really got $15,000 deduction. Whereas before, I would have paid $15,000, but I only got the deduction for $10,000. So that's the idea. Good. And, and let's talk about how, how do I compute my credit, Nima? How, how do I even get to that calculation? So they're, what they're doing is they're taking the, uh, the partner's share of income, which is you know, the ordinary income from, uh, from the K-1, and they're taking it and multiplying it by 9.3%. And that 9.3% is the tax rate that they're using for everyone. Uh, the partnership or the pass-through entity would pay that on behalf of the partner and, and record that on the K-1, and then the partner receives a K-1 and takes credit for that on their individual income tax return. Now, the caveat, of course, is that, first of all, Unfortunately, this is a non-refundable credit. So the difference between a refundable and non-refundable credit is that a non-refundable credit cannot necessarily result in a uh, refund if you don't have any tax liability. So what happens is if your credit and your payments and everything exceed the, if they exceed the tax liability you have at the state, you do not get that money back. So if I have a tax credit or a pass-through credit of $10,000, and my tax liability in full is $8,000, then 
then that $2,000 is not refunded to me. That's the difference between non-refundable and refundable credit. Now, so what on that, Nima, is that 2000 gone? No, or? no. So what that is, is that becomes what they call uh, uh, carried forward. So let's say that $2,000 is essentially applied towards next year. So next year, let's say I have $10,000 credit, but my tax liability is $12,000. Well, I have $10,000 credit and I have a $2,000 credit from prior year. 10 plus 2 is 12. My tax liability is 12. So what happens? I don't owe anything. Now, this does get, it gets carried over five years because obviously this ends in 2025. It's set to expire December 31st, 2025. So that's where that five years come from. Now, another caveat, I guess this is speculation and maybe we shouldn't ever speculate as CPAs, but um, there is possibly going to be some tax law changes coming through the new administration. Uh, we've been monitoring the tax foundation and they have not identified anything or any specific language pertaining to salt tax limitations, um, but that doesn't mean it's not going to take place. That's true. Absolutely. So... Um, how does this work? So the partnership has to make that election, the election to uh, to essentially take advantage and pay the assault tax on behalf of the partners. On First of all, it's got to be on the original filing. It cannot be on the amended filing. You cannot amend it for that reason, number one. Number two, um, the taxes have to be paid by the original file date, the original file date meaning March 15th for partnerships and S-corporations, without regard for extension. So if you extend it, you cannot wait till September, which is the extended due date, to uh, to pay that tax. You cannot, in fact, we're kind of lucky that they have it extended till March as opposed to December 31st because traditionally what you pay up to December 31st is what you get. But in this case, you can take a credit for uh, for that um you get a two two extra month free window there. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, which means a lot. It could, I mean, we're dealing with a lot of money. Um, now, say you said partnership. You, you and I are kind of partners. What if, what if you wanted to do it, but I didn't? Yeah. So as of right now, you know the the partnership level, you can have separate elections. So I can say, okay, I'll take advantage of that, and you can say, I don't want to take advantage of that. And you can spe essentially specially allocate that. You can do that on a partnership. On an S corporation, it's a lot more rigid. In S corporations, everything's pro rata. So if he, if I elect and he does not, then the state pay or the, the S corporation pays those taxes on my behalf. Well, he's going to take a credit for that. That's just the way it works. That's, that's the rules of an S corporation. So in the S corp, it's all or none, and in the partnership, you can make these specific partner elections. Yes, but again, that is something that's. You know, state by state, you know, it's something that needs to be investigated before you can kind Fluid of that. and we will continue to learn as well. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, and you have to make sure that you pay that tax by March 15th, right? Because if you pay late, they can essentially void the election and, um, you know, and essentially not give you credit. Now, I assume that they'll give you the money back, but, you know, everything we've read so far has been silent on that effect. So make sure if you're, you know, this is very, very rigid, guys. This is, you know, you got to make sure everything's all the T's, all the I's, everything's got to be checked because if you don't make it on time, you will not get that election, which is, you know, and, you know, one misconception I was going to say earlier is that some people think that this is, you know, for high income earners. And I kind of disagree with that because 
$10,000 is not that much. If you think about property tax, if you think about, you know, vehicle tax, or, you know, uh, if you think about sales tax, tax, if you go sales tax, if not income tax, right, yeah. the income tax you pay from your W-2s and stuff. If, if my W-2 has a withholding of $10,000 at the state level, well, I get that deduction at the federal level. So, damn, the, there goes right there, right? It goes from, you know, my my state withholdings alone exceed that that assault cap. So, you know, I think it's a misconception to say that this is something that only benefits the rich. It does benefit only the people who have these pass-through entities, but it's not necessarily only the rich. Yeah, it could be more modest earning. Absolutely. Middle-class America. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Uh, You know, one thing that we may want to consider is we have a lot of people who are sole proprietors, right? And sole proprietors do not necessarily take advantage of that because, you know, they're sole proprietors, not a pass-through entity. But, you know, a sole proprietor could become an LLC filing as an S-corporation or um, or they could actually be incorporate and, uh, you know, become an S-corp, file a 2553, elect to be taxed as an S-corporation, and subsequently take advantage of that. So that's something to look out for. If you have, if, you know, if you are a sole proprietor, again, case-by-case basis, right, the net income on the, you know, may not warrant it. But if it does, then, you know, a lot of people who are sole proprietors and are making, uh, you know, have a successful business may want to opt to be taxed as an S-corporation or some sort of pass-through entity in order to take advantage of this. And and Nima is absolutely correct. But let me qualify that a little bit with a timeline on how to do that. Can you do that today? We're talking about this on September 2nd of 2021. Uh, wouldn't have much strategic advantage because your election would be to be a S corp at this point in time in this year and for the remainder of the year. So then your entity net income would likely not, it'd be one fourth of your annual operations. And this computation is driven off net income. So you would likely want to take that election at the beginning of the next year. Um, so your full year of operations would be operating under your newly formed entity. That's very true. And, you know, another thing is those 2553s to be taxed as an S corporation, their due date, their original due date is March 15th. So, um, you know, this is, again, you have to be ahead of the, the theme of this entire thing is that you have to be a, ahead of the curve. How do I take this computation um, into consideration strategically with my estimated tax payments? I, I just saw an article on this and shared it with you today. So let's kind of go over what the tax education platforms are teaching us because we're all students on this right now. Yeah. So um, the estimated tax is is something that a lot of people who own pass through successful pass through entities have to pay if they want to avoid penalties. And for those people who are just listening, um, this is, you know, on the W-2, you have state withholdings, you have federal withholdings. On the pass-through, you do not. So what they require you to do is to make estimated payments and pay the government quarterly. That's, quarterly that's payments, the yeah. compromise. Absolutely. Quarterly payments in order to satisfy your obligations with the feds. At the state of California, the way it works is by the first quarter, which is April 15th due date, you are to pay 30% of your tax liability. Now, tax liability calculation is a little complex because it could be 90% of prior year, it could be 100% of prior year. It depends on what your AGI is. And that's a whole nother topic that we'll go into future lines. But the point is, you have to have 30% of your entire liability by April, then you have to have 70 of it 
by uh, June 15th. And then there is no quarter three in California, really. You're supposed to be paid by quarter one, quarter two. By quarter one and quarter two, you're supposed to have 70% paid. And then quarter four, you pay the final 30%, totaling 100% of what your tax obligations are. So the question is, is this salt tax considered, uh, is this workaround considered an estimated payment? For example, let's say my tax obligations are going to be $20,000. Well, actually, yeah, 20000 worth. So my first quarter, I'm supposed to make 6000 My second quarter, I'm supposed to have a total of 14000 which is 70% of 20000 And then my fourth quarter, I'm supposed to pay the whole thing. Now, let's say I get a salt tax of, uh, let's say, $5,000. Now, does that mean that my fourth quarter, I only have to pay $1,000? Because my fourth quarter obligations was $6,000. Right, because you're looking at fourteen thousand by quarter two, and then six thousand for quarter four. So does that mean that I get the five thousand as a uh, estimated payment for quarter four, and I only have to pay one thousand? No, that's not what they say. They say that you take your tax liability in this case twenty thousand dollars, and then you subtract the credit that you're to receive, which will be five thousand dollars. Now you have fifteen thousand dollars. So now they say by quarter one, you're supposed to have. 15, you're supposed to have 30% of $15,000. By quarter two, you're supposed to have 70% of $15,000. And by quarter four, you're supposed to cover the entire thing. So what does that mean? $4,500 will be your first payment. And then for uh, for your second payment, you're looking at a total of $10,500, which means a difference of $6,000 for quarter two. Quarter three, you should already be current with that. You shouldn't really have to make anything. And finally, quarter four, you pay that last $4,500. I know it's complicated, but anything that's good comes with some complexity in tax law. (laughs) Keeps us busy. Yes, absolutely. Um, So, so yeah, just a real quick summary recap on that. You take the tax credit computation you're going to be getting and you reduce it off your total taxes owed and then you estimate at your 90 or 100% at that target total amount of taxes you need to pay in. So that's that's kind of the summary that we know so far of how this works, the, the formality of how to pay the appropriate estimated tax payments in conjunction with taking advantage of this tax credit. And if you have any questions, you guys feel free to reach out and let us know. We'll be happy to assist you the best that we can. Thank you.